0: Small town music, this is big town music. He's a of his time, you know, but he can use it. Fun he can prove it.
1: Hey everybody, welcome to Rock Solid, the comedy podcast for all things music, both new and classic. I'm Pat Francis, and uh, there's no producer today. There's no there's no one helping me. Kyle is at work. We are recording uh, during the day, but we do have a, a great guest today. Uh, man's name is Jesse Mallon. I had the pleasure of seeing him perform last night at the Hotel Cafe. I took uh, I took friend of the show, David Wilde, along, and we had a, a blast at this show, Jesse. So, welcome, oh, welcome to Rock Solid.
2: Yeah, it's good to be here in California and stuff. Uh, it's, it's warm today. It's warm, but actually when I left New York for this uh, it was kind of a press tour or whatever we're doing out here promoting the new record and, and the one show before touring begins, it was way hotter and, and grosser in New
1: York. So, it was kind of a break, <laughs> you know. Me. Is it cost effective to come to LA to do a show in preparation for your tour? Well,
2: one show would have been trouble, but
1: we've been doing some press things. Okay, cool. We had
2: a lot, that was the idea is to deal, to, to promote the record. Excellent. So, um, yeah, it would be otherwise kind of a, a big <laughs> ride, but we did strip down, you know, just a piano player, guitar player kind of, you know, occasionally I like to play the songs in more of the essence of the way they were written. And, and, uh, I enjoy a, a stripped down show. That's something where the band is great, but also if the songs can hold up and, And I can find a way to put some kind of fever and and power into them in in the stripped down way. It's kind of fun. It's a challenge, you know.
1: And you did something uh, that I love last night and it's very difficult to do is you, it was kind of like a a storytelling type thing. You would sing a song and then tell a story. Yeah. And, (laughs) you know, I've seen that before when it is not good and you nailed it. You were, you were fantastic. Oh, thanks. You know, you were funny too. And for me, sometimes rock star humor isn't great. Mm -hmm. There's only a couple of guys I know. There's only a couple of rock stars that make me laugh. And it's, it's Dave Grohl. And uh, and I think it's Jesse Mallon. Oh, all right. That's good. <laughs> I'll kiss your ass. He's a
2: talented motherfucker. Yeah. Um, but, you know, it, it started when I went out opening for people in Europe in my first solo tour. And mm-hmm. i would always been in bands. And I would say silly, crazy stuff when I was in, in other groups. But when I went out opening up for Ryan Adams through Europe and uh, the Counting Crows and some other folks, it was just me alone with a guitar. And I'd have a guitar tech. So things started to slip. And I had to tune the guitar. Strings tighten them up. I needed a, a way, you know, to have something, and, right. and so I just, deep, you know, go deep into my life stories that were connected to the songs, or kind of trying to tell people as an opener, they didn't know who I was, where I come from, and uh, I kind of always liked it, if, if people were in that setting, and that became a thing, so on the acoustic tours, uh, it's a place for me to, to babble on, and uh, I don't want to be a comedian, I once tried a spoken word show without the guitar, and it's a funny thing, because, you know, you tell these stories, and they're mm-hmm. great on stage, and you can always launch right into a song, it's the safety net like you know a sad song with a funny story it's like tragedy plus time <laughs> is comedy but um, doing it one man alone and telling a story and then you can't go into someone. It's like, take a breath. There's another story. And you just, you feel really naked. Right. So I, I've never done it since I, I, you know, I tried it, but I have a big respect for people like Henry Rollins and Jello Biafra and, you know, a lot of great comedians. I'm a big Lenny Bruce fan, you know, um, you know, have a lot of those records and videos and stuff.
1: So, well, it was, it was, it was very funny. Uh, people were laughing and, and it didn't feel like, uh, it didn't feel like stage patter. It was like, it felt like, it felt like it was just flowing right out of you in the moment which i loved and whether don't don't uh, don't pull the curtain down. I'm just going to pretend It's a mix like, of both. Yeah, a little bit of both. <laughs> some
2: things I've said before and some things go, you change <laughs> things too and then things just happen. But, you know, I have a lot of friends, like I said, on stage, you know, the world is smaller than you think, especially with all the technology and the internet and everything. We're so connected, but, you know, always with New York and LA, there's been a thing. A lot of people moved out here, artists, musicians, or people just to get sober or married or whatever. There's there's definitely, the 3,000 miles, a big connection from the two cities mm-hmm. and, even though it's so different. But I'm always have fun playing here, and and I always you know come out here and it's like different things, and and every place you go, I'm always looking for that weird record store or that crazy clothing store or vegetarian spot, right. And uh, I don't always look at the phone. Sometimes I want people to tell me, you know, or, you know, I want to find it myself walking around like when I was a kid and I wandered into the village by accident from Queens on the subway and (laughs) discovered St. Mark's Place and they had Ramones shirts and, you know, all the things that we didn't have in our little uh, middle class, you know, suburban borough of Queens. So I kind of still like that, like take a walk in London and end up, you know, oh, that's the street where that song was written about. And you see the street name and think of some kink song or whatever.
1: I love the kinks. Uh, my wife and I were in London a few years ago and we did like a whole kinks tour. Like I found their house and I found the, the place where they first played and all that kind of stuff. We, we got in a cab and I was asking the guy, I'm like, yeah, we want to do like a kinks tour. And the guy's like, <laughs> what's the kinks? And I was like, oh, are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? Because that kills me. Are you a big
2: Kings fan? I'm a huge fan. Yeah. I mean, definitely, you know, the, probably I uh, like the mid or and early period. Mm-hmm. There's some later stuff, too, in the 80s that I like, but I think he's a great writer and I love the smoothness of his voice. I mean, even in the 80s, like songs like Art Lover are great. Yeah. Yeah. Um, there's a new Ray Davies record where he, it's called Americana. It's he, most original name, but it's backed by the Jayhawks, and it's some
1: pretty good stuff on there. He does a couple of spoken word pieces in the middle, on that album too. Oh yeah, 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 yeah.
2: Well, he did his storyteller thing for a while. I once saw yeah. it in the West Village in New York. But yeah, I mean, London's full of those things. You go around it, but the cabbies there, for the most part, I'm surprised your guy wasn't Amy Winehouse's dad <laughs> yeah. or whatever. But they usually know a lot because they got to take these courses and stuff, and like they got to go to like a, a school for the job. It is. And like in New York, they just throw anybody in there. And, you know, even here, everybody's looking at their ways or yeah. whatever. They don't know L.A. You're like, turn on Sunset. Let's go over to, you know, the, the, the Arclight Theater. Like, what? You know, it's like they could be in Peru or something.
1: Yeah. I mean, I thought when I said Conk Studios, that, that would be a no-brainer for this guy. But no. We, <laughs> so you went to Muswell Hill and yeah, all that all The whole deal. That's, uh, that's uh, I told my wife, I go, I want to take one day and I want to do this. That's Kinks really the, cool. Cause, uh, so if, if I was to say the Kinks, the Stones, the Beatles, and the Who, could you pick who your top is of those four? Yeah, I could, yeah. And do you want to?
2: I will, yeah. I would say the Rolling Stones <laughs> because... You know, the second would be Beatles. would be a real time mm-hmm. I mean, for a short period of time. Uh, but The Stones, because, you know, I was watching that documentary, uh, Crossfire Hurricane. It's a yes. really great film. Yeah, I mean, there's great. so many rock films, and they're not always, there's, you, you have to be forgiving a lot with rock films. They're not always perfect, and for a lot of reasons, but they're getting better, I think, some of them. And this film, as I watched it, you know, everything they did, like everything you thought, like, well, the Stooges did this or Punk Rock did this or Nirvana did this. The Stones did it all. Like, (laughs) oh, the Dolls did that. The Androgyny. the Oh, they did it. Like, they did everything that everyone would go on and do. And they did it well. And they did it probably, you know, first. But I think Mick Jagger and Keith Richards are underrated as writers. I think the band's known as the Greatest Rock and Roll Band. And I wouldn't want to necessarily go to every show now and see the same set list and the same hits and no deep tracks. But they... um. They've written the body of work and the the records. I love the 70s records all the way up through Tattoo You Mm -hmm. and even some of Undercover in the Night in the early 80s. So I think it's just a great stretch. I think there's the sweetness, the sadness, the sleaze, the blues, the the band, the the thing they have. And, And then the Beatles, of course, as well. The Who, who I love... I have a love-hate relationship. I think they're, don't shoot me, but I think they're overrated. I think that, you know, the records that are great for me, Who's Next and, you know, and some of those things are just so strong. But then there's a lot of stuff that's a long-winded thing and it really worked when I was 14, but it didn't age as well with me. Some of it that didn't fit into... Once I got out of that, you know, teenage boy, angst, uh, masturbation, you know, kind of hate the world, isolation, <laughs> it, it felt different. But The Kinks uh, is very working class, and I love that, too. I mean, you know, it, maybe that ended sooner than The Stones or maybe about the same period, I guess, they went on to to make their last great record. So I think I would take the kinks over the Who. But all of them I think are all part of the you know the architecture of what we have. You know, where yeah. we get to lean on and, and I love all the punk bands, you know, to me the Clash would be my Beatles or Stones. So the Clash and Ramones would be my Beatles and Stones.
1: That's what that's your influence. Those yeah, a big bands.
2: part of it. And it was stuff that I was able to be part of in some way when these bands were semi vital. I'm mean, gonna caught the end of the Ramones and the mid period of the clash. But to go to those shows when I was eleven or twelve after being a kid that was into kids and ACDC and Ted Nugent and I remember a point in my life where Ted Nugent was the wildest most intense thing you could hear until I saw the sex pistols on some people's choice or award show and I was like that's what I want I want to break everything in my room and you know like nobody's (laughs) gonna like accept this this is like got more for some reason we had a lot of anger me and my friends that didn't fit in we were kind of these outcast misfits and that band Kiss hit us at a certain age where it spoke to us and we said, wow, this is great. Yeah, nobody, That was the
1: first concert I saw was Kiss.
2: Me too, in New York at the Garden. And 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 so, you know, I saw that now I understand why the older kids who liked Sabbath and Zeppelin would beat us up and be like, Kiss sucks. And I didn't get it at the time, that they're a great rock band. But I see that if you were a little older, you might have saw through like the some of the novelties, but they had great songs and Ace is a great guitar player. Yep. But um, so we'd get into fights and you had to defend what you liked, but... Then when I got into punk, you know, everybody hated you. It wasn't just the other (laughs) rock fans. It was like the disco kids and and, and you were just such a weirdo. It's very different now. But um, there's something to being said about being really passionate about what you're into. Like you're saying the who, like you're watching Quadrophenia, the mods and the rockers. And, you know, I'm not into violence, but people would fight for what they were into. Now people go to Coachella. I think I touched on this last night. And, yeah, I like everything. And I like a little of this and a little of that. And, you know, it's just whatever my Spotify shuffles me up to today um, but I think there is something great about being really dedicated to something that yeah. you have to stand up for and believe in because it's like that with your values and with life and, absolutely you know, so if you're into the clash you know you got to be ready to wear that red t-shirt
1: <laughs> it's so funny too when I listen to like the first kiss albums now or even even the first Ramones albums they sound so tame <laughs> they now. Do. and I can remember when I would play this and my parents would be like oh my god what is this stuff you're listening to? this is awful and it's like so it is like nothing now. I mean, not nothing, but it's you know what I mean.
2: Yeah, we thought that was the heaviest just shit, the heaviest and you listen thing. to Gene Simmons' bass lines, and they're like a, a wedding band, bar mitzvah, like happy days. They're very fifties, yep. and and uh, and it's and very
1: hip hop. Not hip hop. I mean, uh, sock hop. Yeah, type. very sock
2: hop. Yeah. Very yeah, just just friendly, and and um, it doesn't seem as, as as scary. And even the Sex Pistols record, which remember I put that on, and, and remember my father was like, "What the hell is this?" And yeah. it, it's still an amazing record. That one record and it holds up so well production uh chris thomas and bill price i mean it's just phenomenal but they're pop songs yes you know like when totally matlock not,
1: wrote these it's pop not dangerous songs. Like i mean you thought it was
2: yeah i mean i could see what a danger is and i still can get the anger but th- there's these great choruses you know and uh and they're a rock and roll band and did that's you, pretty interesting one record like i you know. think of all these bands they just made one i mean you know that you can't really count the soundtrack thing they did but it's like if they go out and play they play that one play record. That one
1: record. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well let's talk about cuz you have an EP out right now. Yeah. Now what's the um what's the thought behind making an EP instead of instead of a full album at this
2: point well you know I guess when we started as kids in, in the hardcore punk thing we would do singles and EPs because that's all we could afford to do okay. um, in New York the, the hardcore scene was pretty broke and even you know groups like the Bad Brains their first thing came out on a cassette you know that was through a company that sold cassettes and it's their best work the Roar cassette but you know it was different you know the bands on the west coast when we were in our early teens would come out Circle Jerks Black Flag would put full length albums and Bad Religion and all these groups and it was hard and so we, my first record was a three-song EP, a band called Heart Attack when I was 14. It was called God is Dead. I was uh, very philosophical there. <laughs> but um, And that was on a Fanzines label. And it's still a record that is out there. You can find one. But um, the idea, I guess, goes back kind of to punk days or 50s. Like at one point, The Clash tried to do a single a month or that you can put music out. So it was exciting to me to do something simple. Um, and everybody, whatever the music industry is, and that's a whole other story. But people are like, oh yeah, the album cycle is dead, and the album, and you can just do EPs. And John Mayer just did two EPs and put them out, and then he's going to put the whole thing out. And people just care about songs, and you know, and everything's so disposable these days, right. where people, you know, have the attention span of a goldfish, and you know, everything's deleted and moving on. So it wasn't the point of it, but you kept hearing that, yeah, you can just do an EP. But, um I had been on tour with a guy named Alejandro Escovedo, uh, an artist who uh, is a friend of mine and a great guy from uh southern Cal- from Mexico yeah, Springsteen
1: Texas. talks about him a lot he's he 's done some fan. stuff with Alejandro.
2: Yeah. they had similar management. Alejandro was in rank and file he was in the the nuns and um, he 's also been making solo records for a long time and uh, a great storyteller so we were touring with him and we were in the actually out west out here and driving around and you know watching the news and listening to you know the radio and and uh, jamming at sound checks, and these songs just started to come on acoustic tours. I have a lot of time, especially if you 're opening for somebody your energy isn 't totally you know decimated from like a ninety minute show with a band and saving your voice you have you know you 're doing forty five minutes in acoustic and I like it a lot and you can tell some stories and jokes so I, it gives time to write in dressing rooms and in hotels and and looking out the window of a, a vehicle there 's something about that motion and looking at a country or a town and listening to the news and music. So these songs just started to happen. And then we got an offer for the summer to do some kind of good, bigger gigs for me. One was Lollapalooza in Chicago in August. We're oh, doing. that's great. And uh, Hyde Park in London, which is like their central park, you know, to do a show with Green Day and uh, Gogol Burdello and Rancid.
1: And there's full band shows for They're you? Yeah, full
2: bands. It's a seven-piece band with the horns and all. And so I was like, well, we're going to go on this. If we're going over for one show at Green Day in Hyde Park. We might as well book a tour, so yeah. and if we're going to go out to Chicago for it we might as well book an America Tour, and if we're going to go on tour, we need a 2017 release. so here are these songs. Can we get this done? Because I always want the vinyl to be out there as yeah. well. you know that takes the vinyl plants it's gotten so popular they're backed up so you've got to get it into the system, and can we get the artwork and everything in and bang this out and And I had been working with a guy named Joseph Arthur. he's a really great artist, uh, singer, songwriter, producer. And um, we had worked on something for the Positive Panther charity. We did one song called London Rain, a song of mine I wrote about our old merch girl who who got sick with cancer and ended up paralyzed. You
1: talked about her last night because you were out here and you did a We benefit, did the rock for, for her,
2: yeah. I used to have my birthday show to make it a benefit to get her a special wheelchair so she could be mobile. And um, a lot of people knew her. She worked with Ryan Adams and Tommy Stinson and... Um, Martha Wainwright, so, so during that I, I figured while well, I'm doing this charity I should have a song and uh, I just thought, you know, I got this ballad about her, London rain and how she's such a fighter, you know, we call it a positive panther and, and I kind of want to spook it up a little bit, I don't want it to just be like guitar, piano, I want like some other factor and who do I know and I thought of Joseph because he's pretty arty, artistic guy, he was signed by Peter Gabriel to Peter Gabriel's label originally and uh, he has an edge So we went out to his studio in Red Hook, Brooklyn, behind a, like a chop shop, a junkyard or auto parts place. And uh, he's a painter as well, so there's all kinds of great paintings all over the place. And we banged out this song in one afternoon, and he just put all this other stuff around. And that would be London Rain. We did a video. And uh, when it was time to do these other songs and try to get this summer EP out i said let's go with joseph and uh we went into a studio a bigger studio and, and we knocked him out and he was able to bring in another perspective and it, it happened fast and easy and, and was fun and that's you know what rock and roll records should be so um yeah it's uh, the, the, those songs and the title song is meet me at the end of the world which is the first single
1: well let's hear that let's hear a little bit of meet me at the end of the world mm-hmm.
0: 4th Street and I'm looking at a light
1: People that are still afraid of uh, vinyl uh, know that the vinyl comes with a, a download card. Yeah. So you can download the songs into your iTunes. It's a good looking vinyl too. It's got a, it's got an insert in it because sometimes it's an EP, maybe just have a white insert, but you got to. Uh, yeah. You know, I
2: want the lyrics. I'm yeah. big on the lyric sheets. So yeah. I always like to, uh, to know what everybody was saying. I mean, there's, there's some good mystery not knowing after the Mick Jagger shit, I didn't know what he was saying. I know you had just to like, sit two, there,
1: sit there with the headphones on and play it over and over and over <laughs> again. <laughs> But yeah, I remember when I would buy uh, albums when I was a kid, and um, and you'd and be like that, just that clear insert, that flimsy thing, or just the white paper. Yeah, that would piss me off.
2: Yeah, it sucked. You're like, come on! But you know, people are really into the experience now. Like and as I was saying recently too, on stage, you know, it's just like people are collecting these records again. Yeah. They're liking the sound of it. They're liking the whole experience and the size of it to be able to look at the record. And before we had all this information, you know, you just sat with the record and you, you know, it was left to your, your brain to have more mystery and romance with it, you know?
1: Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm not a, I'm still a, I'm still a CD guy, okay. but I do collect vinyl to get signed. Like I have like a hundred albums signed and they're hanging on my wall. Yeah. I know people that get stuff signed and they just put it in their closet. And I'm like, well, that's, that's a waste. Yeah, I always didn't
2: understand people that were such collectors that they put it all in a plastic bag and didn't touch it. Yeah. I'm like, you can't be buried with it. Like, no. you know,
1: it's meant to be used. I like people to see it and yeah, and, and, or do and, something, yeah, you know, it's I,
2: like, Oh, I have it. Oh, it's, yeah. it's
1: locked up in this closet. You know, yeah, I like people to say, w- w- when did you get Tom Petty's autograph? And then I have a, a story to tell them. It's right. fun. Uh, so let me ask you about, so degeneration. that was your first, was that your first like big foray into r- recording music?
2: Um, well, like I said, Heart Attack was uh, from when I was 12 to 16. So that would be my first band. And we did three records. And
1: see, I didn't even know it. Look at that. Look at me. I'm supposed yeah. to be doing my homework. And I didn't even know about this. But 12 to 14. Yeah, the, the 16. 12 yeah. to 16.
2: First, we started at 12 at CBGB's. They had an audition night on Mondays. And the, the you know, requisite was you had to play original music. So I called from the school pay phone and I, we drove in in one of the mom's cars and we had heard of the Ramones and Blondie and the Talking Heads and suddenly we were on that stage, you know, scared shitless, just uh, going to play Monday audition night of our original tunes. Um, you know, I would got tired of trying to learn Van Halen licks and Jimmy Page right. and I heard the Ramones. I'm like, oh, three chords. My guitar teacher was like, oh, look at this. And then I started writing my own songs. So we had the originals. We were called Heart Attack and we went in and we did not pass the audition because I found out years later that you had to bring 25 drinking friends, which oh, makes sense. Yeah. You know, we brought nobody and no. we didn't drink, you know, we were still on Coca-Cola. <laughs> and, um, so, you know, we played and, and they said, well, you missed it. It's over. You know, that, that stuff happened. The dead boys, Ramones, the pistols, you know, that's done. And it's true. A lot of those bands are going funky or power pop or disco or whatever to cash in or just grow as artists. And, um, so we didn't know, you know, what to do. And they he said, you should try something new, like rockabilly or, um, you know, new romantic. I'm like, I'm not going to dress up like a pirate. So uh, eventually I went further east to Avenue A, which was a real no man's land, made the Bowery look nice. And saw a flyer for a group, the Bad Brains, which is an all black hardcore band from D.C., but it wasn't called hardcore at the time. It wasn't a real term. And suddenly there was a, a movement of certain groups that were speeding up the pace. Wanted to have something that was their own, that wasn't the 70s thing. There was a different consciousness, and it was happening around the country, but you only found out through fanzines and magazines like Flipside and Damaged out on the West Coast and Slash, and in D.C. and in L.A. with bands like Black Flag and in San Francisco, the Dead Kennedys. And when they would tour, it would just be this little communication that this this thing you go in a record shop and some guy would tell you there's this record that just came in so we started to create this own little scene in New York and that would be the New York hardcore scene and Heart Attack would be probably the first release not to Brag um, of New York Hardcore on the Damaged Goods label, which was a fanzine. And as that scene grew, um, I was in it till I was about 16, did three records. We toured, we came out west, played the Olympic Auditorium. And
1: are those, is that music available anywhere? Is yeah, that, is it, it,
2: it's absolutely available. I think it's on, you know, iTunes for sure, maybe Spotify. Okay. Um, There's also a compilation uh, called the Roar Cassette, which has the Beastie Boys, Bad Brains, Heart Attack, um, The Undead.
1: See, I don't know anything. I'm going to have to find this new. Yeah, it's now.
2: different, you know. I mean, it's hardcore, it's early, and I'm, it's young, you know. But we were, you know, living in a time of Ronald Reagan and uh, the draft is a potential threat, Central America and war. You know, it was like kind of kooky times, the nuclear arms race and all. And so we
1: somehow felt we were the Reagan youth you know and and your parents were cool with uh with you doing this at such a young age going well it was
2: artistic Jesus. I wasn't into drugs I still have never tried cocaine or anything like that I've had to hit a pot I drink you know mm-hmm. but I'm, I'm into being kind of healthy but it was always about the music and my mother understood that my dad they had separated so he was living elsewhere and my mom was trying to raise two kids and she was young and she was trying to have a life and work and deal with us and I was pretty intense so I think the guitar <laughs> took the violence out of my hands you put the guitar in your hand and suddenly I had something to channel all this energy (laughs) into. And she was a frustrated, you know, hairbrush mirror singer that sang at, you know, somebody's wedding, get up there. And, you know, I think, you know, she, it it was always in my family, some kind of fantasy, a romance of show business. And so uh, she was supportive of, of the arts and doing your thing. And, and, uh, and even drove us in a big old used boat of a car to Max's. We we didn't get the CBGB's gig, but we did get booked at Max's. The booker from Max's Kansas City, the legendary club, was at our audition. And I got a call. I thought it was a joke, you know. And when you're that young, you got to be careful because, you know, people in the city, sure. around the music scene, you know, there was some sleazy people. I mean, I did get hit on by women, but, but by some men, you know, and it didn't understand it at first, what was happening. And you just, you know, luckily things didn't get stupid or anything. Somehow I got a sense that they're not going to somebody's office at a, you know, nightclub or whatever, you know, in the middle of the night. So, but um, that was a good time doing the music and we got to go around the, the, the country and it was a real network. People out in different cities would put us up and there was a real, uh, D, you know DIY kind of thing about it, and so we toured with GBH, Dead Kennedys. we played with Social Distortion, a lot of a lot of great bands. That's amazing.
1: Yeah, it was real fun. And, and, and were those bands? Uh, those bands kind of take you under their wing at all? Since you were so young, did they?
2: Um, some people were, you know, just supportive. Mm-hmm. You know, someone like Jello Biafra, the singer of the Dead Kennedys, or Ian MacKay of Minor Threat would work in their areas, or even in the country, of trying to put bills together and support the, the so-called scene, and, uh, and, and and which was only thriving on it's this underground way of people helping each other out. Yeah. But it was all kinds of people that, you know, people that are unsung, you know, people that would just put you up and just let you stay at their house, lend you equipment. The Bad Brains, who were the best players we knew, would always lend their gear to everybody. You could get, And we didn't have good stuff. We had Japanese guitars and weird things. And they had, they were a little older and they had great, you know, equipment. They had been a jazz fusion band before a punk band. And so, you know, you'd get to hear yourself like, wow, if I had this amp and this guitar, I might sound like the Bad Rains. Well, that's not going to happen, but you could sound a lot better and realize that what you play is part and of it.
1: What, were the, what was the drug scene like for these older bands that you were um, opening for, well, touring with?
2: Well, there were people that were getting screwed up, but there was this thing... Also, that was so great about early hardcore, not only did it have its own sound and its own look and its own energy and its own things to sing about, so it wasn't the 70s thing. And we were kind of political and socially aware as much as you can be at that age, and and, and some people that were older actually were more educated about what they were saying. Um, it was this thing that certain people were putting out there that were really into the music, and, hey, we're going to be screwed up and intense and wild and have something to say, and in your face, the mm-hmm. establishment... And we're going to be sober. So deal with that, you know, (laughs) not like, all right, well, he's messed up. We'd watch so many people like Sid Vicious and Johnny Thunders. And there's a romance to this messed up junkie, but it never was sexy to me. I didn't know what an after hours club was. I'd go to, um, you know, some basement at a place called Save the Robots on Avenue B (laughs) after a show. And it's like four in the morning and there's no bands. And, and, and I don't know why these people are here till seven. I didn't get it, you know, right. and and they're playing this, it's not rock and roll music. And yeah, they're looking to hook up and, but it just never seemed sexy to me. It seemed like a way that you're going to burn out and lose your power and your message. And the artists that I've always loved were great performers that put everything they had into it, whether it was Angus Young in AC/DC, killing himself every night, Bruce Springsteen, who I would get into years later, HR from the Bad Brains, Jello Biafra, Iggy Pop, people henry rollins that would come on stage and go this could be the last night of my life and i'm going to give you everything it wasn't romantic to see some guy with his eyes rolled back you know like sweating and it can't move it just looked like a bad night with the flu and that was never (laughs) fun
1: now you're doing this at such such a young age. Uh, what, what was your what were you, uh, what was happening with you in high school? Did did you graduate high school? Um, I would
2: try to go to school in Queens because my mom mm-hmm. was from that generation where you're going to go to college, go to mm-hmm. college, like that '50s '60s yeah. mentality. I said, Mom, I'm going to go on tour. I'm not going to go to college, and she said, You'll regret that. So I tried to go to school in Queens. And so you, I would,
1: f- you did. You finished high school. I
2: did it. No, I'll give you, this is a little quick story, but All it's right. funny. So I tried to go to school in Queens, mm-hmm. and I was getting into a lot of fights for wearing clothes that I bought in the city and, you know, being into bands and, and punk rock, and it wasn't acceptable, and it was not fun. And I wanted to be on the road, and I got offers to go. We went to Mexico City for two weeks with heart attack. We went to California. And they weren't letting, they were going to expel me because I was missing too much school. So it was another band called Reagan Youth. My friend Andy Apathy, the bass player, said, you know, there's this really cheap private school in the city called Quintanos, the school for young professionals. And uh, it's $1,600 a year. and, And if you want to go on tour, they accept it and they give you the work and it's accredited for college. So we didn't have any kind of money like that in my family. But on my father's side, my grandmother... Not wealthy in the Bronx, but I called her up and I said, "I got this private school. It's a music school, kind of like Juilliard, <laughs> and it's only." And so somehow they said yes, and it was it was really nice that they did that. And so you didn't have to really go about it. This was a legitimate school called Quintanos, where uh, Stephen Tyler had went, Michael Jackson had spent okay. time there, Bernadette Peters. You could look it up. Johnny Thunders, um, tons of people had put time in there. And now it had literally degenerated. It was the 80s, and Dr. Quintana was in his early 90s, and he was blind as a bat, and the woman that answered the phone was in her 80s. So you could call up, you could be in Central Park getting drunk and say, I'm on tour, and not go in. <laughs> right. And But I, I did go in. I didn't sit in Central Park drunk, but they they really weren't watching, and some of the teachers, uh, Spin Magazine did an article on this a few years mm-hmm. back, a while back, and it called it the, the Real Rock and Roll High School. And uh, they, they would come into class, these guys in suits, and they would point at certain kids, and then it would leave with these guys. And I looked out the window, and I saw these town cars. I said, I want to get out of here. I'm sick of biology class. <laughs> and my friend Andy Apathy said, you should come with us, Jesse. You know, you've got a Japanese guitar. Don't you want to get a Gibson? I said, yeah. He said, well, these women, these rich women, while their husbands are playing blackjack, they'll pay you lots of money to suck on your balls for hours. And once in a <laughs> while, you got to be with a man. No. I said, I think I'll just sit in biology class. <laughs> so I forgot about it. And then my mom kept saying that Mickey the Mouse. The Japanese
1: guitar looked better and Yeah, better, Yeah,
2: right? eventually I got the Gibson SG. But um, they went and they did their thing. And you know. And my mom would say, that Mickey Mouse bullshit school, it better be accredited for college because you're going to go to college. <laughs> well, unfortunately, just after I graduated, uh, whatever the graduation was, my mom passed away. She died of cancer. It was pretty heavy. I had to move home and take care of my sister. And uh, I was living in the city. And this mm-hmm. is in my rehearsal room. And I had to go back to Queens. And it was a rough time for me, but during that time, you know, I, I found other ways to survive. I, I needed to have my equipment, I needed to rehearse, I needed to play live. I got a cheap van and I used it to move other people and move. I worked for everybody from the Swans to Barbra Streisand and the Ramones in their T-shirts and, and NYU students moving. And so it was kind of an interesting thing. I had a beeper, it was before cell phones, and... um my mom would say, you know that, and she passed away. So then years later, I was in a bar with one of my friends who went to the school. And he said, Jesse, you know that school we went to? And it's like four in the morning. We're drunk on <laughs> Avenue Way. You know, Quintanos, he, you know, it wasn't accredited for college. And I'm like, all right, we're, we're drunk. It's four in the morning. Who cares? We're not going to college. We're in our 20s now. And, you know, they were running a male prostitution ring out of the school and I was like, I guess I knew that. Like I just kind of spaced it or right. put it in some denial box somewhere. But um, I did get through with that and didn't go to college. I spent some time at NYU. I always like film a lot. I would sit in on classes. My friends did go to NYU, some of the other kids, and I would just crash at their dorms. Mm-hmm. And there was a class called uh, uh, Scorsese Coppola, <laughs> and it would just show movies and talk about movies, you know. And, uh, you know, things like that were always interesting to me. The photo classes, the NYU photo yeah. school. Um, it was all down in the village and connected clubs to the club scene. And uh, so then after that, I had a low period where I was in a band called Hope, which is similar to what I do now, songwriter-driven thing, influenced, you know, by just storytelling, rock and roll. And uh, that wasn't going too well for me. It was the only band that didn't record records. And I was still trying to catch up from my mom passing and having my sister to take care of and not really sure where we were going to live. And that was about five really down years. And then one night... um, I just said, you know what? it's has like a band for fun, kind of like our the band we wished we saw when we were in the seventies, right. like Aerosmith, Kiss, the New York Dolls, and the Dead Boys, and you know, all wrapped into one, the Stooges. And I said to my roommate, Howie Pyro, you know, you want to let's just make a band. I'm not going to play guitar and try to be earnest. I'm going to take my shirt off and jump around and we're just going to have fun and <laughs> let's play this party that we've been DJing at. And, and we called it Degeneration um, and, and uh, it was kind of a joke band. And suddenly we got a record deal and things started to move and me fighting with this band hope to try to even get, you know, a single out. Mm-hmm. Everything was falling into place by not caring, you know, and, uh, and having fun.
1: Let's hear uh, from the 1st degeneration D-Generation album, let's hear No Way Out. I also want to play this song because you re-recorded it for your second album. Um, okay. Because look, it's, it's different.
2: Oh yeah, it's faster.
1: The
0: better, see right? I'm just
1: and the bass feels like it's more out front too.
2: This is done by Rick OCasick from uh, The Cars. Produced this one. The first is uh, David Bianco was at the gig last night. Oh, really? Yeah, the guy who produced the first No Way Out. Yeah, great guy, great tradition.
1: So, uh, your second album, how do you get hooked up with uh, Rick Ocasek? Um We
2: were on EMI for the first record and uh, that was our first record deal and we were so excited. You know, we got a major deal and we're on tour with the Ramones and we got some money and then we got dropped. The president got fired, the guy that believed in us. They took him out of That's EMI. That's the story I always hear. And so we got a new guy, David Seegerson, I remember the name, and... He wasn't uh, a fan. It was someone else's baby, you know. So they let us go. And at that time, No Way Out, the song he just played, the first version, version, excuse me, was on the radio in New York like 35 times a week on the big rock station. We had a feature in Rolling Stone. So cool. When people still read magazines. And um, yeah, things were going. We sold out Irving Plaza, and this president of EMI comes to see us, and he says, I don't get it boom, we're dropped. So I figured,
1: why does a guy like that not get it? If he sees that it's being played on the radio and he sees that the, that's sold out. So what if he doesn't get it? These people that are paying money, get it. Yeah. That never makes sense to me.
2: It was, it was an odd thing. I don't know if he saw the, the future or he just thought maybe, you know, maybe it was just, Big in you know in, in New York. I don't know what it was, or it was just like you know he was pissed that it was someone else's thing, and he was more of a dance guy, a, a, a dance background from what I remember. That always but,
1: drives me crazy too. If I if I took over uh, someone else's whatever uh, executive position, but he already had a roster of people that were doing well or up and coming and probably going to do well. Why would I be pissed off about that?
2: Yeah, it was very odd. In fact, a lot of people came to our defense. But I remember we came to a sold out mm-hmm. show. We were in Rolling Stone by David Frick that week, and we were on the radio, thirty four spins a week. It was you know I'd get in somebody's car and the song would come on. You know, be like, wow, this is this is happening. And so we we're dropped. And like friends that were maybe four or five years previous to me that had been in rock bands around the Guns and Roses time in the late eighties that got dropped they were, you know, working at a shoe store on St. Mark's Place in a record store. You know, all right, I'm going to go back to moving furniture. And my manager and publicist said, no, you know, we're going to get another deal. And I'm like, well, I never heard of that. You know, I really didn't believe it. And they were Right. And, uh, these people came out and spoke in the New York papers, in uh daily news and the post, uh, A uh, program director was interviewed by somebody at Q104, the station, Vinnie Marino was the guy's name. And he said, yeah, the song was reacting and it was getting played a lot. And then the label said, stop playing it and play Queensryche. And so we had to listen to the promo, you know, like, so we had people saying like that the shift was like unjust or whatever, you know, this life is life. And, um, a funny thing was, next thing you know, we we have like five labels, and we're flying out here to play for A and M and Virgin, and we decide to go with Sony. I think uh, the. the a and R guy that would be James Deaner. He he just really impressed us with the whole staff, and it felt in every New York and very. And I think part of us also liked that label, that Columbia Records, from looking at the Bob Dylan and Springsteen and Aerosmith records right, right. as a kid. Or, I don't know, it was just it had a thing. Don Einer was the president. He just came on real strong. He took us to a party out here, uh, Grammy Week in, in Rudeo, and we met Robert De Niro and Springsteen and uh, Spike Lee and. Mike Ness from Social D.
1: It was like, oh, yeah. The, How can you the, not sign with these guys? I don't guys. know. They
2: would just seem like they really wanted it, and you know, who knows? So we end up with them, and we got like a really good amount of money, which in those days, you know, maybe not to sound like an idiot bragger again, but like it might have been the biggest deal that an unknown ban on Sony had gotten.
1: Hey, look, if it's true, then you. Yeah. It's not no, I think that's true. the
2: truth. It's fairly silly, yeah. but so we had a lot of money at our fingertips, and. We actually made them sign the contract. They we said, we want to sign and take a photo. Everything was like a big deal then. Right. So we made them open up the Cyclone roller coaster at Coney Island. I have photos of this. And off season and get in the roller coaster car with the president of the company and all his execs and sign the contract and then go ride the Cyclone. And uh, Bob Gruen, the rock photographer, took those shots. So we signed with them, and you know, we we had this a guy. who was very meticulous. We met with everybody, and we picked Rick Okasik from the Cars because he was an artist. He was artist-friendly. He had worked with the Bad Brains, and they're pretty volatile. He worked with Suicide Rick, and uh, with Alan Vega, and he had done uh, the Weezer record we liked, yep. the, the Blue One, and Bad Religion, and Courtney Love. And, and so, you know, we just felt like we met with him in a coffee shop in 14th Street, and we, I mean, everybody, the band Degeneration generation was five guys that grew up together in Queens and there was brothers. It was a real brotherhood. It was a real band, whether you liked the music or not, we were a real team. So we no infighting. Everyone, complete infighting.
1: Complete infighting. <laughs> oh, Love brothers. and hate yeah, sure, everything. Right. Okay. I
2: mean, you know, it was like, it, it could be so disrespectful and so loving and so intense, but that's what made the live shows really fun gotcha. to be part of something real. It's like a five headed nuthouse monster. And so sometimes we weren't always very respectful to people, producers and stuff. But once Rick Ocasek came in, a soft-spoken, tall guy that had these great records with the cars that we all grew up on, everybody shut up. And we made that record really fast and really painless. It's called No Lunch. And uh, we loved working with Rick. I mean, we had a great time with David Bianco, but this was another experience. It was our second record. And uh, it came out about 20 years ago.
1: (laughs) Yeah, 1996. Let's hear a little of She Stands There. Get it. Great. Sounds great. Do you play, do you, when you're doing like these, uh, full band shows, do you get into any of this stuff too?
2: Um, no, we did some degeneration shows, uh, last couple years and we put out a record called nothing is anywhere last July. And so I, I keep those things separate when we do that band and it's those five people. Uh, with my stuff, there might be things that are similar to that Hmm. energy wise occasionally, but it was a clear change to, to do my solo records and have a different place. I, I wanted people to listen more to the lyrics and the songs and, and just kind of break it down. But over the years, the energy and the, the need for uh, jumping around and stuff crept back in.
1: <laughs> uh, well, I want to jump. I want to play one more uh, Degeneration song, then I want to get into your solo material. But the third album, uh, Through the Darkness, produced by Tony Visconti yeah and did you get hooked up with him the same way through the label just you met people and
2: he had always mentioned interest in working with us and we kind of you know passed each other in the city lived in new york Mm and and of course we had mad respect for t-rex records and bowie Bowie, records and all that 70s greatness thin lizzie yeah and and you know i always thought he was english but he's a guy from brooklyn but he'd spent so much time in england and i just
1: met him a couple months ago he's is is healthy and yeah, it looks it's so martial good. arts. And yeah,
2: he was dating Mae Pang at the time, so she was around the studio a lot, and we um we had a good time with Tony. You know, he um came in, and you know, it just uh, another one of those situations where I think well, the band was kind of starting to maybe put more friction on each other. It was Mm -hmm. the third record. It was a lot of pressure from the label. Uh, We had been on tour with Green Day and we had been on tour with Kiss and Offspring and and all these great bands. And we were trying to find like this next record. It was kind of our last chance. And we had been six, seven years at this point as a band. And um, it was kind of really great in major cities, you know, and we had a great cult following and artists really loved us. But We'd go out into the Midwest or to other places, and it was uh, we were getting hit with chains
1: and getting so. But you know, you're in, bottles you're, in the head. You're in the Midwest and you're opening for Kiss or Green Day, and and the audience isn't accepting. You guys?
2: Sometimes with Kiss, no, with Ramones, but with Green Day was probably the, one of the shows, the tours we did Europe with them too. We're really connected, mm-hmm. but uh, they also were very supportive. The drummer Trey Cool would get in the pit on our first song and I was like look around. This guy's getting the whole crowd going, and he's got a drum tonight. It was pretty nuts, pretty great. But um, yeah, some of that was better. But people didn't care about my lyrics. They didn't, you know, they didn't. They just wanted to slam and mosh and go around the circle and stuff. And we could have been singing the phone book. So I was getting kind of frustrated. Yeah, and I yeah, found they, myself I'm on the broken. tour. Bus, that makes sense listening to wilco and listening to whiskey town and neil young and steve Earle and tom waits and and you know i grew up with before kiss with early elton john and jim croce and um you know songs I, I always loved you know sad acoustic type stuff too so i started to lean towards that the last song on uh through the darkness the tony visconti record is a neil young cover don't be denied and i think the other last song is a is a ballad I wrote about my girlfriend called Violent Love. It's just a sad you know tour song. But so it, the writing was on the wall a little bit that something had to change and and uh,
1: and when you're writing like that was was the band receptive to that or, or were they like this isn't really what we some do? Some were
2: some felt that it wasn't right for us that I should put it somewhere else, and some of the guys were really into it. You know, it a good diverse. Record collection amongst us all. But you know, you, you can, you gotta have certain things for certain audiences. You get out in a certain energy. And uh, so it was time for that band to end, I guess, in its own way. Um, there's a lot of love and there still is. And it's great to get back with them. And, and the new record, I think, is really fun. Um, you know, Danny Sage, the guitar player, produced it. And we got to keep it really nasty with our front house guy engineering it. Um, and then I felt like, you know what, it's time to to do this thing and, and, and be a solo artist. And I was very scared about, you know, being under my name and all that. I liked being in a band as much as I liked wanting Some, to be a leader. Right. But I didn't know, like it seemed very adult to be called Jesse Mallon. It was very like James Taylor. Yeah.
1: Well, Jethro yeah, well, You're definitely putting yourself right out there. To yeah. And on I didn't the cover think, and...
2: I didn't think it was very rock and roll too. I was worried about that. You know, I was still 30 years old or something and I didn't have a lot of money to make the record and I, I couldn't get a deal right away and I found myself back in New York DJing at clubs and and I, I formed a band right before that called Bellevue. It was kind of a bridge band. It never it made one record, but it um it was kinda of a little bit of DJ and a little bit of what the Jesse Mallon records would be. And I think I was just scared to make the leap. And then one day Ryan Adams, who I'd become friends with through Degeneration, he just you know, he had gone from whiskey town to being a solo artist as him, himself and he said, You write the songs, you pay for rehearsal, you know, you, you do all the work just call it yourself. And I was like, you know what? He did it. And he did really well at it. Of course he's a super talent, but, um, it, it just seemed to be, that was the last push I needed. And I didn't have the money to record this record, but I was living on the safest block in New York city, the hell's angels, uh, New York chapter block, East third street. You don't need bars on your windows. You don't need anything. Cause they're out there watching the block. It's a motorcycle club. They're watching their bikes. And, um, I was paying nothing to live there. And some slumlord bought the building and offered me, uh, like $29,000 or something to, you know, it was a lot of money back then. still is a lot of money to leave, just to leave. Of course, I'm going to have to find another place to live. So I paid off uh, some debt so I could walk on some other blocks. And the rest of the money, we had to go in the studio. And, and Ryan was on tour for, uh, I think, Gold. And he had, I don't think he'd produced too much before that. but he had done some late-night sessions of stuff, demos. And he came in and in five days where he did the fine art of self-destruction. Um,
1: you did this whole album in five days?
2: Yeah, um, that was it. He had because five days between sound... tour. It was very live, and, and he mm-hmm. had a great idea for... Uh, to mic the drums very minimally, three mics, to give it a real room sound. Uh, it's been compared, some people said, it sounds like, you know, more 60s or like an early Rolling Stones kind of Andrew Lou Goldham production. And I thought he did a fabulous job and uh, I was very lucky to have, you know, his input.
1: Well, this is from 2003. This is from The Fine Art of Self-Destruction. This is Queen of the Underworld.
0: You say you are a revolution Like an age contradiction with alcohol and lust, you know the things you have are
1: broken. There's the 60s in, right in there, that little. Yeah.
0: And, you can't
2: and that's him on guitar playing uh, those stabs, those
1: kind of walk on by stabs. You can do this in five days Yeah You can Everyone can't But you can You and Ryan I don't know (laughs) I don't think I've done it like that since I had no choice There's some flaws in there though (laughs) I like your voice because You can It's kind of like Kind of like a A chameleon Like you can You can sing like that But then you can really rock it up And then you can really like Just the vocals can just shred. If I have to use that word, I yeah, will, yeah. but, um, but yeah, it's, uh, that's, I love this record. I'm going to play, uh, let's hear a little bit of, uh, Wendy. Wendy left
0: me all alone. No postcard or telephone. turn down by the beach. The two parks bar way out of Like Tom waits on the poet's heart, sixties, kings and carwah. Through the night till I'd fade. Never I fade. the selection never bleed.
1: And then you played uh, a song off this album last night. You played Solitaire. Yeah, dedicated it to Lemmy. Yeah, that's a great song too. Oh, thank you. I mean, this is a this is a great album. Now, what did this out did this album? What did it do? Did it uh, was it, uh, did people find it? Was it successful? This record,
2: that, yeah, this record got um, really good reviews, and you know, the English magazines. I nobody knew Degeneration in England, so I went over mm-hmm. there with Ryan. It was like I was a new artist, so it was a new rebirth to be able to, to reinvent myself, or sort of whatever. And were you
1: opening for him, or were you playing? I was together? opening
2: for him in theaters, and uh, yeah, again, his generosity was just uh, really important and really amazing, and, and just made a big impact. But got to come out there and tell some stories and play some songs and. And, um, yeah, it was, it just felt like things were, were brand new again. And, and this record, people seem to listen to the lyrics and talk about the songs you know first record even though it wasn't my first but it was my first solo record i'd been singing and writing for four other people so you're very conscious that you're writing songs that the other dudes got a back it's a band even though if you might be one of the main lyricists you know it's a certain head and a certain attitude and here it was like all right i'm just writing for myself me myself and irene you know and i can put you know whatever i want up there and uh examine myself or sing about my sadness, heartbreak, loss desires. And I had a lot of that, you know, it was a record about, um, you know, not necessarily a breakup, but yearning for, Mm. for lost love and wanting to maybe fix some things you know, a particular person or a few people, and uh, it was just a great outlet for that to be yeah. that free. And I think that's what a lot of times. I think in that period of the early two thousands, there was a lot of great songwriters in a new rock way were coming out, like Pete Yorn and and Ryan, and you know folks like Jeff Tweedy, and it was just uh, there was, was a lot more of that happening. You know, so we well,
1: have a lot of listeners that are are also always uh, t- texting me and tweeting at me about uh, about Pete Yorn and and Ryan Adams. So my hope is. That a lot of people are going to find Jesse Mallon music now. All right, or That's, degeneration, or degeneration. But, but um, um,
2: yeah, Pete's great too. I toured with him a bunch, and he he sang at our at our show here in the Roxy in January and stuff. But um, I love what he does, and he's a sweet guy. You know, it's really down to earth, very uh, just funny, regular dude, big heart.
1: Did you like the uh, Did you like the Hotel Cafe where you played last night? Yeah, it's cool. Were you annoyed though That people were talking And was well, that Well you do an
2: acoustic just, show would go on at 10 o'clock And you know People are drinking in a club It's not a theater You know it's gonna happen I yeah. mean it Took two people I mean I kind of had to focus in mm-hmm. And try to get them To shut up But um, And it becomes Kind of part of it But
1: it, it didn't wreck me. The sound I mean, you was loud enough. You, you didn't seem angry. Or you didn't no, really it wasn't seem, at that uh, point. You know. and, and
2: they were nice. They said, we're talking about you. But, I know. And you're like, yeah, yeah but talk it takes, about me afterwards. Yeah, it takes one or two people to be very distracting, you know, when you're playing that quiet mm-hmm. and you're focused
1: and yeah. or you're telling a story. That's also a drunk person's answer. We're just talking about you. Yeah. It happens. So it's you gotta, okay, right? You got
2: to be ready for it. You know, if I was playing like a really pristine mm-hmm. theater and maybe... Be a little more respect but it, you know the bars right there and people are shooting shots back I
1: saw I saw a Peter Wolf solo at that venue uh-huh. and uh he had a band with him and uh he was yelling at people all night because they wouldn't they wouldn't shut up when he was talking and they wouldn't Yeah some it, people get a little angry. in
2: my Patty Smith routine but yeah um, it was okay though. It didn't, you know, yeah. it's not like a night where it is like somebody where it kept going and we, you yeah. know, I've had those nights where the you're sound pissed, was, yeah.
1: the, it sounds great in that room. The sound yeah. Was we great. brought
2: our guy, Mark, who travels with me, Mark Lewis, is like a front house guy. It's a kind of, he's part mm-hmm. of the band. So, uh, and who
1: was on stage with
2: you last Derek night? Derek Cruz, who was uh, on my records and is a writer as well, we've collaborated on a lot of great songs and, and produced stuff as well. Um, he's a multi-instrumentalist, real talented guy I met who lives in uh, in New York. And uh, joined by a guy from out here, Greg Foreman, known as The Pharmacist. He plays with Cat Power. And uh, we met through James Williamson of The Stooges. We were doing something out here at the very, Public Theater. Very, very tall gentleman. Tall guy with a cool rock and roll haircut yeah, looks, and a uh, great totally, talented keyboard yeah. player. Yeah, Greg's been around and, and still does great stuff.
1: Yeah, when, uh, when, we, when, uh, when we walked in, he was there and uh, my friend said is that jesse and i go no i go that's a rock guy but that's not that's not who we're here to see (laughs) but we did get to see him uh so then a year later another album the heat yeah the heat was the second record for a label that danny goldberg had called
2: artemis and uh after touring the first record i wanted to write about some other people not just about myself and it was uh george bush time and i was going overseas a lot and people wanted to know a lot about america and what we thought about what was happening and you know, it was post-September 11th, which, yeah. you know, being a New Yorker, it was, uh, like I said last night, you know, the world's been a screwed up place for many years, but in, for ages and thousands of years and whatever. But some of this stuff now feels closer to home and more personal maybe to some of my people, mm-hmm. you know, when it's happening at music shows and venues that I've played, like the Bataclan or when it happened in New York and just watching how it affected us. I brought a lot of people together and, and just the sadness and the recovery of it and uh, what people had to do, scrambling jobs. And, you know, the first year was was pretty tricky and, and it was just awful. So that kind of crept into the record too, I think, um, with the heat. And, uh, yeah, that came out and we, we toured that a whole bunch. And um, I think Pete Yorn sings on a song called Swingin' Man on that record, now that I think about it. And Ryan, again, played some fantastic guitar um, – he was busy. He was going to almost produce it, and he kind of did in a way. And then I kind of took over. It says it's produced by me, but um, it's the only thing that I'm aware of that I've produced in this world. Um, <laughs> never been married. Uh, never been married. You know, no I've kids. had a lot of relationships, mm-hmm. and I uh, believe in love and, and the connection of two people and, and what that is and stuff, but no children that I'm aware of. Yet, mm-hmm. no. And uh, no marriage yet, but I'm, I'm still growing
1: up, You know, figuring it out. Well, here's uh, from the Heat. This is uh, Mona Lisa. It has like a George Harrison guitar string, yeah. yeah. yeah.
0: To the Prima Donna's Medicaid, the counterculture 9-11, baby, boom. Paulie's waiting to retire, smoking like a forest fire, putting on the panties and the lipstick in his mother's room. Nothing to do.
1: How long does it take to
2: record the heat? Um, well, it took a long time. <laughs> that took maybe about five, six months of in and out of touring. Mm. Uh, you know, I was trying to figure out how to finish it. Ryan had started working on it, and just hearing his guitar playing on there and everything, I realized, wow, again, he added so much. Um, you know, we were doing it between touring, so we, mm. we were touring a lot. Um, but it drum, comes out
1: the fall. It also, but it still comes out the following year. Yeah, know, yeah, we
2: got it pretty fast. I know. Um, at that point, uh, the drummer on there is just listening to him, Paul Garisto. He, he plays with the psychedelic furs and played with Iggy pop and he's on a Ryan record, love is hell. And, and, uh, a bunch of stuff, but uh, uh, what's the guy from Depeche mode, David Kahan. I think Yeah. And yeah. yeah, just hearing him the way he hits the drums. Listen, I don't listen to these records very often, but uh, well,
1: whenever I have a, uh, uh an artist or musician in here they they no one ever listens to their own music they play it nightly but you're not listening to it with headphones well, where on. the
2: record was you know how we play it so different now it's a lot faster that song and you know it's got a laid-back sleaze to it but but paul garisto uh they always say you're you're only as good as your drummer and, and man i have a great drummer randy schrager uh plays with me now on my records he's fabulous too on the new stuff but but hearing back in those days 2004 yeah paul's it's great, and um, Johnny Paisano, the bass player, was on the first. Well, two, that can't two be two a real records. name. You mean it is? Anymore? Yeah, no, no, he's from Brooklyn. Yeah. <laughs> um, plays with a guy named Willie Nile. Now, a guy that you might want to. I know who check. Willie. Yeah, I've He'd heard. Be good Willie on Nile. your program. Got stories.
1: Um, so last night you referred to an album that was your California album. Yeah, glitter in the gutter. Glitter in the gutter from two thousand seven.
2: Yeah, I lived out here for six months, and I was on Adeline Records, which is a label that uh, Billy Joe, Green Day guys had started out, started up, I think they still have it in some form or another, and uh, they were, you know, doing their thing, and they were very cool and generous to me, and I ended up out here working with them and their manager on that label, and um, it's more of a rock record, more of a, a pop record, I think it was a record that was, you know, reaching for some other kind of audience, and Sometimes those records work out, sometimes they don't. I I think it worked out in the sense that, you know, it's a good record.
1: But are you trying, when you're trying to do, are you, are you, do you change your writing style because you're.
2: Uh, I was trying to make maybe the choruses a little bigger, but, you know, the producer I worked with was really pushing, like, you know, we got to see further with this and hit this harder. And, you know, we spent more time and money on it. Mm -hmm. and, And, you know, sometimes that can not work out but I think it did I think they did a good job and you know it was just a a bit of a change I mean every record as an artist you should evolve to some level it's not like I don't like when bands completely changed and like oh they went metal and you know it's you know but it has to be some kind of evolution that makes sense I think we see that with the Beatles and of course the Clash and anybody but you know so we we're we we're going another direction it was fun being out here as much as it's different and as much as i bag on it but it was still uh, a good experience to record actually behind uh, this big clown you see in movies on the circus liquors if you've seen some of these movies this clown on top of a liquor store yep. we recorded right behind it in an alley
1: well this is a great i i, I love this record a lot yeah. i really do maybe it's because i live out here but this is uh don't let them take you down
0: mm. Now my whole world shaking. We were born to play.
1: Uh, quite a few songs under three minutes on this record too. Yeah, that always works. Yeah, that makes. That's it, not a bad thing. <laughs> no, that's not a bad thing. Now, uh, a song that I uh, talked about, you know, when it came out, it was um, is Broken Radio, because you got some uh, you got some action with this. Let's say because of because of Springsteen is on it with you. Yeah. And how did that happen? Tell me the story of...
2: Uh, He had heard my first record at Fine Art of Self-Destruction and called me on the phone, believe it or not, and said all these nice things. I thought I was dreaming or tripping or
1: something. How does Bruce Springsteen get your phone number? Uh, He gets his management,
2: get in touch with my management. And my (laughs) manager said, Bruce is going to call you. And he didn't call, so I thought she was full of shit. But it was a couple more days and a couple more days. And then the day after Thanksgiving, I remember, because the city gets so quiet on Mm -hmm. holidays. And the Friday after Thanksgiving, I just woke up and... It was a message. So I called him back because I don't wake up early. Right. And the first thing he said, I said, "Yeah, I just woke up." He goes, "Ah, I missed those those rock and roll hours." Yeah. And uh, we talked for you know a good long time, and just about the record. And he, you know, had a lot of great things to say. And. I said it's it's all Ryan. that did all of it. No. he wanted to know a lot about the production. Mm-hmm. Though he really liked the production, and and the, you know, of course, he said some nice things about the songs. And
1: yeah, I like that song called Wendy. <laughs> yeah. That's
2: a good one. Well, we end up doing some of those songs. <laughs> so he asked me to do some shows, some mm-hmm. uh, holiday shows in his town in Jersey, a New York guy. It's pretty close, so we went down there. And
1: well, how can you you can't say no to Bruce Yeah, yeah
2: and and you know, I thought we were going to do Christmas songs. So I'm like, yeah, I know the Run Run Rudolph, and you know that <laughs> Ramon's Christmas song. And he said, no, we're going to do your song. It's gonna be Max Weinberg and Nils lot, you know, most of his band and some other folks that were great, and and we rehearsed and I'm with him. It was, it was very unreal, and uh, we did two or three nights in the, in the Paramount, a Convention Hall, not the Paramount, the Convention Hall, beautiful old place in Asbury, and uh, he was very complimentary. And on the bill was like Sam Moore from Sam and Dave, and. John Bon Jovi you know it's a local charity for the holidays and um Steve Van Zandt sang a really cool Ramones tune and and I'm trying to remember who else was up there but it was it was a real good Carlin Jeffries I think and uh Southside Johnny maybe I think he came one of the nights Mm -hmm. yeah and I met David Chase from the Sopranos and Danny DeVito and I was having like a great time and I went out to some restaurant with Bruce and just talked music and so we stayed in touch, you know, we, we would invite me out to some rehearsals for, you know, other records, Seeker sessions. And then I was going to move to L.A. and I went to see him up in Boston. And I said, I'm going out to L.A. to make what would be Glitter in the Gutter. And uh, he said, well, you know, if you need me on anything, I'm down. I'd you know, love to be part of it. Keep me in mind. And I was like, wow, that, that's pretty cool. So I said it to the producer, Rob Caggiano, uh, the guy who did the record.
1: You now, when, when he says that to you, do you believe him or do you think that's just something nice that someone Well, says? with
2: him, this guy was so sincere and so giving, and and uh, we'd stay in touch, and I'd come to different shows and hung out in the dressing mm-hmm. room. You could see that he's just, you know, all the stories, but he's real deal, honest, you know, from the heart, a lot of integrity, no bullshit. So, yeah, I said to the producer, you know, B- Bruce wants to do something. I figured he's just going to play a guitar solo, <laughs> count off one of the songs, right. or, you know, play some guitar. or yell, oh, yell. Two,
0: three, yeah. Oh.
2: He, yell hey or something and you know didn't want to make them do too, too much and the producer said no you got that song i said what song he said you know the one you wrote about your mom when she passed away and it's called broken radio or i don't know what it was called at the time on the radio and my mom was a you know frustrated singer singing yeah. the car to the radio and, and, and it was about her so he said send that to him and maybe you guys sing it together and it took me a second to, to get around that idea because it was a personal song and then I said, all right. I wrote the letter because I was big on letters and and lyrics handwritten and sent it out to New Jersey. Snail mail with a stamp. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And um, put my phone number. I had a new cell phone at the time and I'm driving on Sunset and Vine out of the place called Sunset and Vine. I was staying right right over by Amoeba and the phone rang and, you know, Ms. Bruce, he said he liked the song and that... You know, come on out if we wanted to come out to uh, Jersey when we got back to the East Coast. So we left here and flew out there and went to his studio. And he came in and you know drove up on a Harley down this uh, <laughs> gravel road. It was it was pretty neat in the middle of nowhere. He couldn't find his place. It was like Apocalypse Now, like you know Colonel Kurtz or something.
1: But yeah, I was, um, I was having trouble finding this place. My, my <laughs> ways wouldn't work.
2: Yeah, he didn't need that. He knew <laughs> he had his bike. And we did that and we did the video. Danny Clinch, great photographer and yeah, film, you got filmmaker. him in the video too. And then we. We went and got together again and did the video which was really neat because you know you sit around with two guitars waiting for them to get the lighting right and the shot right and two guys just screwing around on guitars and that was fun like in between doing this video so it was unbelievable to have a song about my mom a song that was that personal and heavy to me and then have this this Icon, someone who was a big influence on me when I was getting out of punk, Mm -hmm. and I wanted to write songs that had meaning and it had some reality and feeling to them. Nebraska would be a big, big thing, and the starkness of it. And then Born USA came out, and because I was already hooked on his lyrics, I thought it was great. I thought it was had a lot to say. My friends thought it was like you know, what do you mean? This is like Rambo and patriotic. I'm like, get the lyric sheet. This is not what you think. This is. It's on our team, and uh, yeah, he's, they're, he's they're on mis- the right side. You are
1: misinterpreting the, it like the way Ronald Reagan misinterpreted exactly.
2: it. Exactly. So there was people, I guess, that, that worked that way, but um, he made it as clear as he could, and it you know, stands up still, that record. But yeah, it was a great thing, and we did that, that song, so it was fun.
1: Well, let's hear a little bit of Broken Radio.
0: I was thinking about another time still in my mind no little girl high on this world Your baby loves you more than you know Raised on rivalry and rock and roll Moving to the motor city so she lets go on the radio Well, we never had a lot of cash But we love those kids Some say that she missed the boat But she just booed
1: Now, when a song like this is uh, you had written it for your mom, is it, um, is it a is it hard to sing this live? A song like this, that's sometimes,
2: personal? yeah. And you know, I've done it with Bruce a couple times live um, had some charity stuff for mm-hmm. Parkinson's Disease Light a Day. Twice, I think we've done it, and uh, yeah, it, it gets there. Um, we do. We don't play this one that often. It's kind of keep it for special moments. Yeah. Even if he's not there, I've done it. You know, I'll sing both parts. But yeah, that this one definitely hits, uh, pulls on the heartstrings and knocks you in the gut a little. For me, um, listening to those strings, yeah, I forgot those those strings are on there. We'd finished the record. We'd been out of budget, and uh, which was a nice size budget. And we we for those days, you know, two thousands, when uh, <laughs> the music business was dying. And and um, you know, they were very good to me to to finish it. And I wanted to hear these strings on it, or the producer did. And we were out of money, so a good pal uh, I reached out to. Uh, a guy named Howie Lipson, if he's listening, he he gave us the money for those strings. Oh, and, that's nice. And that uh, was a loan, and he was very, but he never asked for them back. And, um, <laughs> well, he, now and he's he, going to hear it. Yeah, and, and call you know. me up. Uh, but you know, you get these um, patron saints, you know, or something like that. But uh, that was, was neat to do, and it was um, fun to work with the producer Rob Caggiano, because you know he he pushed uh, everybody equally, whether it was Bruce or me, who just acted like you know it wasn't. He just did what he did and just, uh, yeah. was like, hey, sing it like this. And, you know, he, and yeah, you go to Bruce's house and Bruce knows what he's doing. He's got his own engineer there and everything. And the guy was producing just, you know, it was the same as he was talking to me or Bruce. He just was very, uh, very real to who he was and, and he did great.
1: And well, that's cool. It wasn't like just he's talking down to you and not to Bruce.
2: Yeah. No, I wasn't talking down to Bruce. It was very, you're just to, treating but, you yeah, both but, uh, as yeah, equals. Yeah.
1: Uh, and then another song, and this is since I didn't, uh, I didn't know broken radio was about your mom, but another song on this album is, uh, has my mom's name. It's Lucinda. Oh yeah. So let's play some of Lucinda. And then after Glitter in the Gutter, you decide to do a covers record. Yeah. And I want to ask about covers records because like when you, and you, and you pick some of my favorite songs of all time and some, you know, iconic songs, how do you make that your own or what, what's in your, like for me, I would say like, well, I'm not going to cover that song. I can't do. Yeah, I Anything. just try
2: to find a way. You don't want to be a karaoke cover band. Right. you know. Uh, I guess we had been asked to do these covers for tribute record things on Mojo and uncut magazines on the cover. They yeah, yeah, there's things mounts. you get for free. Those are so cool. I had done Hungry Heart already for one of those or for Light of Day, and, and I wanted to change it. It wasn't my favorite of Bruce's repertoire, so I made it slower and tried to do a more of like a suicide flaming lips drum machine mm-hmm. thing. and. And uh and I felt like all right, I'm gonna get my own take on this and I had done Bastards of Young by the replacements and made it a piano ballad. Like I like the idea of taking, you know, a fast song and making it a ballad or you know, just changing stuff up. So um I don't think I'm the greatest singer in the world, so I'm gonna end up sounding just like different than Elton John for sure, doing his songs and you know, probably not as good but it just was something a labor of love like making a mixtape tape for somebody you know where i wanted to have like i i said last night on stage like something that was um you know all the things i cared about schizophrenic record collection from the kills to jim croce from elton john to the bad brains to the hold steady to you know uh neil young and uh so i just did it for fun and, and it was just one of those records just to do and, and part of when we did the first album tour we only had that one record and so we needed other songs, even
1: play covers. They play covers.
2: Yeah, a couple to show where you're coming from or have a chance to, to screw up a song and turn it into something.
1: And this album there's Two two different versions.
2: There's an English one and there's an American one. Yeah, They the different songs. There ones. were so many songs that we covered that we said let's make it like when we were kids buying those imports. And yeah. The Clash in the UK was different than the Clash record in America. And you know the Rolling Stones Beatles.
1: aftermath is different from the yeah. US so Africa. we
2: were kind of getting on that. It was just a it got a little carried away though.
1: Well, you, you brought up uh, you brought up Elton John and uh, this is one of my favorite songs from um, from Goodbye Yellow Brick Road. So Great record, Harmony. Yellow Brick Road. Yeah.
0: Hello, haven't seen your face for a while Have you quit doing time for me? Or are you still the same sport child? Hello, I said hello Is this the only place you thought to go? Am I the only man you ever had? Or am I just the last surviving friend?
1: Then I'm gonna go right into uh, Paul Simon.
0: The rolled out of bed and she ran to the police station. When the papa found out, he began to shout, started the investigation. It was against the law. It was against the law. What the mama saw, it was against the law.
1: I like I like your versions of both of those songs. Oh, cool. Those are both cool. And then so that's <laughs> 2010, and then you do you do another album in 2010. And this is it's not just you, it's Jesse Mallon and the St. Mark's Social.
2: Yeah, it was a more of a band thing, more of a rocking thing. We did uh, with a producer named Ted Hutt. He had just done Flogging Molly and the Gaslight Anthem and I signed to a new label, Side One Dummy cool uh, rock and roll punk rock label out West here. And, and uh, yeah, we did that record in a very New York sleazier rock kind of sound. It's
1: a, th- this is a fantastic album. I love this album. Oh, really? Thanks. And um, here's my thing. I don't know why that you are not a household name.
2: Well, tell somebody.
1: I know. Who do I tell? Fix that. What do I do? <laughs> but because you've recorded so much music, so much great music, and it's, it's the music industry is so. you're in it so you know but it's it's so tough tough.
2: you got to enjoy doing this if you don't you know there's so many days that are they're tough you Mm -hmm. drive and there's no money or you know some days are amazing some days you're getting paid great and playing wonderful audiences but you got to love what you do and you know for me i'm kind of this artist i've been around a while now and you know i have a a nice loyal fan base but yeah you know i'm still hungry for other things we go out open for different people and um you got to not get like well. I wish I was like that. You got to try to find appreciation in, in where you're at, and and still keep your your hunger. I guess. I mean, that's just for me anyway. But it gets challenging. And um, but I love doing it. And when you step back, and you know, you get to a certain show, and, and you connect with an audience, and they they're giving you something to something you created, and they have their own f- feel for it, and spit it back at you, and it's it's a it's a good thing that that kind of lifts spirits, you know. Something in music that's very medicinal. So,
1: and do uh, what about um, movies and TV? Have they found you? Have they licensed? Jesse i've Mallon had some music.
2: songs in some films maybe i'd like you know right now i'm connecting with some people that want to do a lot more mm-hmm. a lot of times to keep the band together because i was a solo artist i had to sell my publishing to to get a nice fat check to be able to pay for the tour bus and the band and the salaries and all and you know so and, and so i could live so sometimes some of the records got tied up in publishing sale you know having other places that didn't do anything with them but I'm in the process of getting a lot of that back and, and there's some re-recording of some of our favorite songs that we had, me and the guys, and then, you know, with new stuff. But I feel, um you know, still excited and I still wake up like, you know, what is that, the Mickey Mouse Club, Anything Could Happen Day, you know, like we gotta make stuff and, and I try to stay as positive as I can in a, in a crazy, you know, kind of... Uh, world where the music business people say oh it's done and, and rock and roll is is not very dangerous anymore mm-hmm. they got the school of rock summer camp down on beverly boulevard you can enroll rock 101 and you know it's, it's very commonplace but um it's still something i love to do it's it feels right and it's to from the heart and and sometimes it, it stinks to to have to deal with all the things around it you know to make it happen but once you get there and you know the lights are on and the, the music hits you know it takes away a lot of the pain
1: well, let's hear some stuff off of this album that I like called uh, Love It to Life. This is a song called All the Way From Moscow.
0: The Russian rain was falling on the Golden Arch. I felt your interest made through the wild. And the gypsy kept on playing. It's now on the string guitar. All the way from Moscow to New York And I'll watch the dirty river roll by And I'll delegate the ceiling to the lungs of my life And I'll watch the dirty river roll by And I'll medicate the culture so you're high and dry And you're talking
1: And then I'm gonna go into uh, burn the bridge
0: the, As a child the, While the others not-
1: assume you're always writing yeah I mean sometimes
2: you take a little break just to build up a lot of stuff but right now you know once you get in a period I mean I'm working on a new record but I always have like a pen with me or I'm writing on my phone people think you're texting you writing into the notes section and then <laughs> Um, watching films. You can sing, films, and you can sing, sing and a, a, a song. One. I record. The voice notes are chucked full of stuff from sound checks, from sitting on a bus or any. But yeah, it is something that, you know, I sit by, you know, from watching a show or a movie or at home. I got the, the pen and the paper. Ideas just come, or you hear the way people speak. Somebody says something and a whole idea for a song. Or I just collect things that I hear or like and then if i'm in a you know place where i need an extra line or maybe it'll inspire a whole song i have this notebook of things that i've just written down that either i you know picked up hearing or from a, a movie or conversation or or just happen to think of walking down the street you know i say like i like walking in cities to moving forward you know uh, that whole thing keeps the brain going you just get right. out of your house and just walk around and songs just start to happen
1: and then last night during your show you uh You let us in a little behind the scenes of how Jimmy Buffett writes songs. (laughs) Yeah, I don't know. I think I was jerking around with
2: that one. You were? Yeah, we were in Key West at a BMI showcase for songwriters, and uh, I was just
1: venting a little bit. But uh, yeah, it was all right. But you said Jimmy Buffett writes songs on a yacht getting a rim job. Oh, yeah. I guess I said that. That is what you said. All right. <laughs> that, that's a new one. <laughs> <laughs> that is
2: ex- well, I'm sorry, you remembered that. And no, I-,
1: <laughs> I remember because I was cracking up. I was uh, crying because uh, that was making me laugh. So look, since 2015, you've made you've made three albums and an EP. You got Outsiders, New York Before the War, uh, and then an album with an, a, a reunion album with Degeneration. generation Yeah. And then and then the EP. That's a ton of that's a ton of music. Well,
2: there's a big break though. To be honest, not to just slap myself around here on the back, the 2010, which you played uh, was well, "Love yeah. your Life," we went till 2015. It was a five year gap, and so, I never. Was a lot of songs built up.
1: What do you do in that five
2: years? Uh, we toured a lot. Saint Mark Social was a fun band to be on the road mm-hmm. with, and we just were on the road constantly. And then I think I had a little bit of writer's block. I didn't really know what direction I wasn't going to go mm-hmm. in when I grew up or whatever, and I didn't know. So um, and then uh, once it breaks. Then that the pours in, and we had a lot of songs. We did one record with Don DeLego, another artist at his Velvet Elk Studios in the Poconos, and down in Virginia, some of it. And then went into the city and did uh, at the Magic Shop, the studio where it just closed. If you watch the Dave Grohl Sonic Highways, the New York one is mostly about the ma- is about Magic Shop Studios, yes, and where David Bowie did the last two records before he died. And they were done like very secret near his house. The studio was in Soho. And so we were there with a lot of people that worked on the bowie records and um you know black star and the, the next day and um so we did new york before the war a lot of it there and and outsiders most of that with don Lego in more rural areas areas and then the degeneration record was done in the basement of rehearsal rooms um that we have down in downtown lower east side of manhattan with our front house sound guy mark lewis so you know um that was done really raw and, and kind of fast but yeah a lot of a lot of stuff came out in a short period a lot of vinyl
1: And you seem like you don't, it doesn't matter if you're in a big expensive studio or if you're in a basement, you just like to write and record and create music. Well, you want it to sound good, but
2: sometimes it just works. Like suddenly, wow, this sounds cool like this. Let's keep it like this. You know, we don't need to spend all that money and go there or, you know, maybe we will. But, um, yeah, it's it's a, an art form and in, you hear yourself in different places. It adds to what you're creating, the the sound, the equipment and the difference in the room. And, you know, it's just like playing in different venues. You get a different feeling or a different city, different crowds. Right.
1: So. Well, I want to play a song from a, uh outsiders i want to try to play uh songs from all these albums so that people will go and and find these albums on itunes these are all on itunes and
2: amazon spotify all those things that pay big
1: you can stream a lot of this you can stream a couple of your albums on amazon if you're a prime member and you can hear the whole oh really album okay so that's some mailbox money all right i hope so (laughs) i'm waiting this is from 2015 from an album called uh outsiders this is all bets are off
0: Bobby was a postman Working for the system Never did a bad thing His family's gonna miss him Last house in the
1: And from New York Before the War I'll let you pick one of these I have Addicted "Oshina," oh or She Don't Love Me Now She Don't Love Me Now You played that one last night didn't you No we didn't but uh, we should have no.
0: <laughs> I my baby mall, somewhere in Ohio I guess I was-
1: have looked at my notes the whole time which is good uh who do you do you seek out new artists now and listen to how do you what do you listen to? do you do you check spotify out or what um, do you do?
2: sometimes on playlists and weird things other artists will make lists of stuff um you know go to clubs and bump into things new york is small and full of all kinds of live stuff and um sometimes somebody will you know just tell you check this out or i'll read magazines like you know the english magazines are pretty great or magazines in america like the big takeover and different things like that. Yeah, there's a group out here called L.A. Witch that uh, opened up, or actually we opened for that. We did like a double bill in New York recently. They're a younger band from Silver Lake that I like a lot. Um, A lot of other artists, a band called Hollis Brown that's uh, out of the New York area from Queens. It's a really great kind of Americana rock and roll band. Um, it, it's kind of hard sometimes nice to remember all the stuff that I listen to that's new, and then you know there's other people that are making great new records. The new Craig Finn record is great. Uh, Matthew Ryan, who's going to be touring with me in Europe, has a great record out. Cool. That uh, Brian Fallon produced uh, from Gaslight, and um, I mean it, there's lots of cool stuff for sure. You just got to look harder. You know, it's easy to play the old records that we all are familiar with, but they don't always give you that fresh inspiration that you need from something you haven't heard. It's hitting you for the first time.
1: Do you have a go to like? album that you still mean so much to you that you still listen to.
2: Uh, I have a few but London <coughs> Calling by the Clash, Goodbye Elbrick Road by Elton John, uh Nebraska Bruce Springsteen would be one, uh, Russ Never Sleeps uh Neil Young, Sam Cooke records, um The Bad Brains roar cassette which I mentioned earlier. Uh, and know. is that, is
1: the, the Bad Brains Roar cassette, can you, is that on? Yeah, uh,
2: you can get that everywhere at the Roar Sessions now. Okay. Yeah, yeah, sure.
1: Yeah, the song that uh, All Bets Are Off uh, reminded me of something that could be on Nebraska. Oh, cool. kind of like that, that yeah.
2: vibe. that's good. Yeah, that's a creepy story, I guess.
1: Yeah, what's going, I was, uh, yeah, when I was listening to that today, I was like, what's going on? Does he, what happening? These people
2: now? working in a, in a meth lab and, and, you know, make, well, in somewhere out, you know, out west in one of those weird towns that no mm-hmm. one's around, and uh, this a uh, murder happens. So,
1: yeah. and where does that come from? What headspace are you in when you come up with uh, this story? I don't know.
2: Sometimes people tell you weird things that happen where they were growing up, or you know, things that could go, or maybe I don't know, watch the wrong movie or something. <laughs> it just sticks in. But there. sometimes, yeah, or you know, sometimes I'll read an article or something in a paper, or, you know, and uh, you know, some weird card game where these people got into a lot of trouble. and hot, you know, weird things. So that's a good idea for a song, you know.
1: Uh, let me play a little bit of the uh, the Degeneration uh, reunion album called Nothing Is Anywhere. Let's hear a little bit of a uh, piece of the action. Sounds good. Were you happy with the results of the uh with that album?
2: Yeah, certainly. Definitely. Danny Sage, uh, the guitarist, produced it. I think I mentioned that earlier. But yeah, he wrote a lot of did it. Did you guys
1: play many gigs on the East Coast? I don't um, know. Um we
2: did and we came out here and did the Roxy and we did uh San Diego and San Francisco and Portland and Seattle and yeah, we we came twice actually through.
1: Cool. Yeah. Well um well, you got you have dates coming up. I wanna shout out that June 20 you'll be in you'll be in the UK. June 29th, 30th, July 1st, 3rd, 4th.
2: Yeah, we don't get back till July 12th. I think the first gig um, back in the East Coast is what yeah. July 20th.
1: But we have we have listeners in the UK. Uh, oh, um, Peter Spencer, uh, Jesse will be in Manchester at Sound Control on July 4th.
2: Yeah, celebrating Independence yeah, Day.
1: Exactly over in the, over in the UK. Uh, your website is Jessymallon.com. Easy. Twitter is at Jesse underscore Mallon. There was another Jesse Mallon. I guess they grabbed it, yeah.
2: Trying to make me buy
1: it back. So he said, we're going to underscore you. I'm I'm Pat underscore Francis, so. All right. I don't think that happened to me, though. But maybe with you, because you're. Who knows? Who knows? coincidence. The show is that we are at Rock Solid Show. I want to thank uh, Carla Parisi from Kid Logic Media for getting you in here for us. And for inviting me to the show last night. I had a great time. And uh, so this EP comes out June 30th. It's called Meet Me at the End of the World. You get it on vinyl, get it on compact disc. The vinyl comes with a digital download card, so don't be afraid of vinyl. Uh, It's got three songs, and I'd like to play out with one of these songs. I'll let you pick. Do we want to play Fox News Funk or Revelations slash 13? I think
2: Revelations would be a good way to end this party.
1: Thank you so much for coming here. I appreciate it. I I know you took a lift
2: yeah, better than Uber. You know, it's better for you, better for the world. Um, but that oh, was great. It was great chatting with you. Thank cool. you so
1: much. Uh, I will, uh, of course, send you links uh, if you want to put this on your website when it uh, when it posts. But have a great tour of the UK. Um, so glad I got to see you in a, in a nice, intimate setting last night with some storytelling and from uh, some wisecracking and some <laughs> some great music. And uh, everyone, go to iTunes or Amazon or wherever you go to get your music and Jesse Malin, M A L I N, or D Generation, and uh, find this music and buy this music. So we're going to play you out right now with uh, Revelations 13. Thank you, Jesse.
2: Thank you.
0: Meet me at Angelica's For the final scene In black and white Hevelica You'll find the village green Doctor or doctor in Mirror all mirage Stockholm Syndrome metaphor Blame it all on mom I thought about a conversation As it played back in my head I think I had a revelation Sick of calling on the dead Purple hearts and question marks She's still dressed to kill Coffee shops and confidants Is she a friend of Bill? The promise of another year A birthday in the fall For a mighty woman, dear We almost had it all Back in my head I'm gonna make the transformation just like what we in Berlin Everything's gonna be okay Gonna be alright Gonna be okay yeah. Everything's gonna be okay Gonna be alright
1: cox internet when you add cox mobile and get fiber-powered internet at
0: home and unbeatable 5g reliability on the go so whether you're playing a
1: game at home yes cool, or attending one live you can do more without spending more learn how to save at cox.com internet cox internet is connected to the premises via coaxial cable cox mobile runs on the network with unbeatable 5g reliability as measured by ukla llc in the us to h 2023 results may vary not endorsement other restrictions apply